So today, um, our message is, well, centers around the fact that what the human race wants, they get. If you, whatever you want from God, you're going to get. And that he, and it's a real uh, solid argument for the fact that God does honor the free will of his creatures, that he doesn't sovereignly overrule our free will but you know there are cases when he does of course and so but if you're going to get what you want as the very uh, famous saying goes be careful what you ask for you may get it and if as we'll see in a passage today in Romans 1 that if you ask for deceptiveness and the wickedness that comes with that or really the word is unrighteousness if you ask for the unrighteousness you'll get it and when you say, well, and it's, I'm sure all of us have done this, after we've reaped what we've sown, we may ask God, why didn't you stop me? You know, why didn't you stop? Why didn't you just do something to stop me from doing what you knew I was going to hurt myself or hurt somebody? Why didn't you stop me? Well, it makes me think of a counterfeit. This time I went with money. I think the last time we did uh, pictures or paintings. So is it real or is it fake? I'll give you a second. Those of you who are playing online, well, it's too bad we don't have an interaction. I know some churches have that where you can log in and it shows up. Whatever you vote shows up. You can. They do. I've heard it. They do it. You can do it with your phones. And anyway, so there's a very telling. Well, obviously, you're not. What does it say up top? Yeah, it, I think you can say it. See it. Well, Ken, you're close. You should be able to see that. Well, it says right here. I forgot to get my pen here. Right there. It says, for motion picture purposes. So it's a fake. Uh, yeah, that's movie money. Looks pretty good, though. Yeah? I think uh, I'm, I saw a headline that someone had passed these off. And, but, of course, you're always going to get caught. So anyway, say let's say you had a, a box of these, and you knew, or something better, you know, didn't have that massive. Uh, this is not real uh, text on it. But let's say you had some funny money that was really well made, and you were pretty sure, 99% sure, you wouldn't get caught. Um, if you spend them, if you if somebody spends that which is not real, in other words, exchanges for something, then you're, you're going to get what you pay for, right? And, and so God will not stop spending you, sorry, stop you from spending. He, God is not going to stop you from spending the capital he's given you. And we're going to see today, every member of the human race has this capital. He's not going to stop you from spending it for something that, is going to hurt you. And he calls it an exchange. So we're going to start in our main passage to get us warmed up. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And uh, we'll open up in prayer. Let's be grateful and thankful for God's word. You know, always in this time we're learning and being instructed by our Lord about things that no man could know, uh, and, and God freely instructs us. So that's why it's so important that we're humble and reverent while we learn. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this time and this privilege of being in communication with you through your word. We thank you that you've given us the spirit within to make your word alive and real to us so we can understand it. We thank you that you are always faithful to teach us. If we long to know, you will teach us. You will make it uh, understandable, and you promise that. And We are so grateful for your faithfulness to your promises and to your grace that continues to give to us, though we don't deserve any of it. And uh, we thank you for our Lord and Savior. We thank you for this hour in which we have to learn. And we ask, Father, that you will bless this time through your spirit. 
And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if we look at start at verse 8, um, the theme today is going to be centered around the fact that the deceived of the world, which can be Christians, we're going to focus mostly today on the unbeliever, that the deceived of this world uh, pursue unrighteousness and God will deliver them over, not deliver them from, but deliver them over to the sins that result from the unrighteousness they pursue. And this is stated that God's going to give them, he's going to deliver them into the things that they pursue. So, of course, God is not the author of sin. He doesn't create sin. He doesn't push anybody into sin. But he is sovereign. And if a person chooses a path of destruction, they will find it. And so in 2 Thessalonians 2.8, Paul writes, Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. The whole purpose of this paragraph is kind of the center of the letter, which, you know, there's three chapters, so it literally is. But um, the, the idea of these Christians in Thessalonica that Paul is so grateful for, that they are not to be deceived by the idea or, or the false impression that they might be in the day of the Lord, or they, they might be in the tribulation, uh, and so he states again here that the lawless one will be revealed. That if, if that's true, then you are in the tribulation. But then his destruction comes, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That's the second coming of Christ. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. Now in verse 9, we're back to the Antichrist. He's empowered by Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception, all, sorry, all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. And there are those who are utterly destroyed. That word perish is final. And so this would refer to uh, the unbeliever, and, and in this case, unbeliever who is existing in the tribulation, who has under all of this deception, the deception of, and the word wickedness, adikia, is unrighteousness. So the deception of all the deception of unrighteousness. And it's the ones who haven't escaped this uh, deception is listed next. The reason, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence. So on top of the fact that they're deceived, God is going to send more deception. And we're going to, by the time we get to the end of Thursday, we'll find out what that is or at least learn more about it. And uh, the purpose of that, God is going to send them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in, and there's that word again, adikia, unrighteousness or, or wickedness. So we're going to focus out of this passage on two things today, uh, this week, sorry, and Today we're going to, we looked at what deception was on Sunday, and today we're going to look at it some more and also start to move it towards the second point is why does God send delusion into the world upon people who are already deluded uh, or already deceived? And we'll explore that. Does this only happen during, during the tribulation, or does he do this in all ages? Uh, we'll, and today we'll get a glimpse at that. Uh, but also we'll uh, continue to learn today that what is deception? Uh, the, the Greek word is apate, and it means to give a false impression, to deceive or just deceitfulness or deception. Uh, here it is the noun. There's a verb too, which is the same thing, apatao, which means to deceive. And deception is, therefore, in this case, and when you think about it, there's all kinds of deception, right? Uh, fake money, fake paintings, uh, you know, advertising, uh, where they're trying to trick you into buying their product. People lying to you flat out, uh, say a politician or somebody who's lying to you. Um, and so there's deception everywhere. But in essence, you know, we can't tell every truth. We can't tell every lie. But what we can understand is, you know, the, the true deception of the world, or really the great deception, is the fact that God is not enough. Right? Your creator is not enough. That Jesus Christ is not enough. 
that God is holding back. It's the same thing. We go back to the first deception in the Garden of Eden where Satan says, you know, God just doesn't want you to know good and evil, right? He's holding back on you. And this is the great delusion of the world, is that God and his laws, his laws are too restrictive, and restrictive means, well, he's holding back. You know, you, you can have sexual, illicit sexual fun. It's fun. It'll be good for you. God's holding back. He's holding back from the human race. And I, and I say that because I am, the more I have studied this deception thing, I'm, I'm really pretty amazed at how much sexuality comes up. It would be in our passage today and in more passages. That, uh, and it's, it's very frequently mentioned. Uh, and you know, it, makes it makes me understand that you know, sexuality is a very great part of what a human is. And God has restricted it to marriage, of course. Marriage, and I have to say, in our age, marriage between a man and a woman. <laughs> so, uh, and and that's going to be addressed today. Um, and <clears throat> you know, there's this. That's what deception is. Really, the great deception is that God has not really provided for His own. He has not provided for the human race. He's restricting the human race. He's holding back from the human race. And so, we need to set God aside and do this on our own. And that, you know, that will lead you down every path of sin. And, so, and it would make sense that it's called unrighteousness. It's that, you know, all kinds of words could be used, Greek words for evil, for bad, for sin. But this one is unrighteousness, this word wickedness. It means the opposite of what God is in righteousness. So, and here's that word. It's adikia, all deception of wickedness. Wickedness is adikia. Again, it's the word dikia is the word for righteousness in Greek. And you put a um, alpha in front of it, and it makes it the opposite. So, it's wickedness is unrighteousness or deeds that violate the law of justice or law and justice. So, this will occur with signs and wonders, as we just read uh, in Verse uh, 10, note 9, he he comes with the activity of Satan, the Antichrist, with all power and signs and false wonders. Now, with power, signs, and false wonders, people are going to see this and be amazed. We all would be. We find out in the book of Revelation that this Antichrist is actually killed and he comes back from the dead. Whether it's smoke and mirrors or it's a real death and resurrection, it's anyone's guess, but... The world's going to think, at least, that he died and he was resuscitated or resurrected. And people are going to be pretty amazed. We all would be at the power and miracles that this one can do. But you see, like when Christ, the true Christ, did miracles, his miracles were really the support to a message. The miracles said, look, look, I have power from God, but you know, his true power was in his word, in his message. But in the Antichrist has power, but then he also has a message. And the Antichrist's message is nothing like our Lord's, obviously. And the Antichrist's message is evil. It's wicked. It's unrighteous. And so while the people are seeing these signs and wonders, they're also hearing the message. And so though they're impressed... They're actually hearing that which is wicked. And so, back in, um, uh, I think in verse 6, it's called the mystery of lawlessness. And so, the mystery of lawlessness, this phrase in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, is a forgery of God's mystery. It's a forge. Uh, It's a a counterfeit. It's of God's mystery... And we should understand mystery in the way Paul uses it in the context of a first century reader in the Greco-Roman world, where in their time there were secret religions. And the Romans were all into this. The Romans uh, had conquered many worlds. And what the Romans did when they conquered your town or municipality or whatever, uh, they would take your god and put your god in their pantheon. So if your city's god was, say, whatever, Malok or Baal or something, they would take that, 
and put your god in their pantheon and they would some people would worship it but they were and they syncretized these but and but with these um these uh, gods that they had conquered or the people that they had conquered that uh, they came with certain mysteries and people were into this. In other words, it's kind of like, what am I thinking of? Uh, uh, The Secret Society. I can't think of the name. Um, Masons. Yeah, thank you. So, right, they have like secret handshakes and secret meetings and secret rituals and secret knowledge. And, And this was super... Uh, uh, you know, uh, very popular in the Roman Empire. And that's what they called them. They called them mysterion. The Greek word is mysterion. So this mystery is a mystery of the fact that there's, you know, Satan has a mystery. and But God has a mystery. And God's mystery is Christ. God's mystery is, as Jesus said it, it was the mystery of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, and the mystery of the kingdom of heaven was this time between when Christ was crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven, and when he comes back at the second advent. And Jesus uses those parables, those parables in Matthew 13, the seven parables, to describe that time. The the parable of the sower, the wheat and the tares, the leaven, the mustard tree, and, and all of those Uh, are in this time, and it's a mystery time, or at least it was. But you see, and the great mystery is Christ, but now to us, to believers, Christ has been revealed. He's not a mystery to us. And so Paul, tongue-in-cheek, calls this, it's the only time he uses mystery with a negative aspect, which is the mystery of lawlessness, that he accredits to Satan this mystery And like as if Satan has these secret rights or this Antichrist in his kingdom to come, which has this secret doctrines and secret rights. But then Paul reveals it for what it is. And oddly enough, what it is, well, not really oddly to us, is that it is full of lies. The mystery of lawlessness is what? All deception of wickedness. And that's what the kingdom is made of. So if your kingdom, the power of your kingdom is deceit, what is the power of your kingdom? It's nothing, right? Smoke and mirrors, it's air. However, those lies, though they are really nothing, they have an amazing impact on the human soul. And there's a reason for that. The human being is made in the image of God. Even though we're fallen creatures, we're in the image of God. And being in the image of God, we are designed to live like God. We're designed to live, not just exist. God doesn't just exist. God does. God loves. He's righteous. He creates. He does. And we're designed not to just exist. If we were just like animals designed to exist... You know, to live, to eat, to drink, to procreate, and then die. And that's it. That's our life. Then fine. Then none of this really matters. But we're made moral creatures. And if you have nothing to live by, then you don't live. If if the standard of your life is a deceit, it's void, empty, or Solomon would call it in Ecclesiastes, vanity, if, you're, if it's empty, meaningless, and vain, then you can't really live. And what happens to you is that you decay and you have a, a miserable existence. And people think they can do this. They think that they can just disobey God, disobey his laws, and survive. And just say, hey, God, leave me alone. And even though God, I mean, in essence, he could leave you alone, but he hadn't created you to live like that. In the essence of you and in every single human being is the need to live, to actually live in the manner of God. And when we don't do that, the machine's broken. We're born broken, and if we don't fix it or allow God to fix it, the machine falls apart. And so, the mystery of lawlessness is deceit. Deceit leads to sin, and sin ruins lives. 
The deceit is the power of this kingdom. And some escape from it and some don't. The deceit, I mean. And Paul says who escapes from it. He said the ones who don't escape from it, those who perish are those in uh, verse 10. Again, with all deception of wickedness for those who perish. Why? Because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. The ones who escape actually receive the love of the truth. They receive the love of the truth. Those who are entrapped by the deceit obviously do not receive it. Now, please emphasize this word receive. None of us search for it and grab hold of it. None of us go find it. None of us earn it. None of us do anything other than receive it. And that's exactly what the Greek word means. Uh, and it means to receive it, and God's going to give it. And like I said at the beginning, you know, be careful what you ask for. But what if you ask for, or not ask for, but if what God gives you, you say yes, uh, then you have actually received that which is eternal and good and is profitable for life. If you say yes to that which is unrighteous, and where the unbeliever does, uh, the believer can, then you're accepting that which is not of life, and it takes away from life. So we receive it. We don't search it out and take hold of it. Now, how do we receive it? Well, that's there too. We receive it by faith. The verse 11 and 12 says, For this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. So, how do you receive the love of the truth? You believe it. Now, when we see the phrase love of the truth, we might think, and probably do at some level, that that Paul here might be talking about the maturity of studying the Scripture. In other words, someone who's mature in the Word of God. But there's no way that he could be mentioning that here, because this is about salvation, This is about those who are saved as opposed to those who are not saved. If salvation was based upon you becoming a Bible scholar and falling in love with all the the word of God, then that would be salvation by works. Receiving the gospel is receiving the love of the truth. Now, think of this, and I want you to think of this on two levels. On one level, if you were a drowning person and someone saved you, I don't know how you wouldn't love being saved. Right? Say so you're in a situation where you're sure you're going to die, and then all of a sudden you're delivered. I don't think you'd be kind of like, eh, that was fun, or something like that. It'd be a great impact on you. And for all of us, when we're, we understand at least whether at the moment we're saved or at some point after, that we have escaped hell, that we have been accepted to eternity with Christ. I don't know how anybody doesn't love that. And I think they would. Now, whether Paul has that in mind or not, none of us can know. I don't know. I'm kind of guessing at it here. But one thing I do know, and we all do know, is that Paul here is referencing the tribulation. Now, if you're a Christian in the tribulation, you are risking your life. If you're a Christian in the tribulation, you are not going to take the mark of the beast. As God says in Revelation, anyone who takes the mark of the beast has the wrath of God upon them. So believers are not going to take the mark of the beast, and therefore you won't be able to buy or sell. So to be be a believer in the tribulation is to take your life in your hands and also put all of your livelihood at risk. And therefore, there's going to be zero professing Christians in the tribulation. There's far more of them now. I don't know how many, but I'm, you know, but there are some. Those who are saying they're Christians, but they're not. Um, Because what? Their family are, or they go to church, or for whatever reason. It's a social thing. They never actually personally accepted Christ as their Savior. They see Christian or they say, you know, yeah, I'm Catholic or I'm whatever. I'm Lutheran. Why? Well, I was brought up that way. Uh, as I asked someone who wanted me to marry him 
and his future bride. And I said, well, are you a believer? And he said, well, I said, are you a Christian? And he said, well, my mom was. And I'm like, well, it's not an inherited thing. You have to actually make a choice. Um, And so uh, in the tribulation, if you're going to be a believer, you're going to be a believer, right? <laughs> There's no faking it there. And But our, in our day and age, it's probably perf- when I say professing, I mean in word only. Uh, there are, they're pretty abundant, I would think. So the point is, is that if you believed in Christ as, a savior, as your Savior, you have immediately escaped some of the deceptions of wickedness. I say some, not all. Right? You cannot be any longer deceived with your, you know, you may go to hell for that. You know, if you are a believer, you know you're going to heaven. If you're a believer, you know you're saved. If you're a believer, you know you have a father and a, and a husband in Christ and a brother in Christ. You know you have the Holy Spirit. At least at, at the basic things that Scripture says about the believer, you likely know. So you've escaped some deception, but you haven't escaped it all. And so it remains for us to see how do we escape it all. At first, we talk about the unbeliever. It says that God gives them over. And this, go to Romans 1. God gives them over is the Greek word paradidomai, which means to deliver. Right? So this is, that's why I use the box as my illustration. This is, and it, I used an ugly box <laughs> on purpose. Um, this is, this is like the Amazon guy delivering on your porch. That's what paradidomai can mean. But in this case, in Romans 1, it means to give over. So deliver applies, but this is, um, you know, like you're in, say for instance, God has put a hedge around you like he did with Job, and you keep jumping over the hedge and jump. I want to go into the unrighteous world. I want to go into the unrighteous world. And then so you're the prodigal son. And is God going to let you go? And just like in the parable of the prodigal son, the father said, go. I'm not going to stop you. And this is huge for us. I mean, our decisions really do matter. Be careful what you ask for. With the box, I thought of Monty Hall. Well, you have to be old enough. But apparently there's a new, uh, with a new host, Let's Make a Deal. I, I've never seen it before. But, um, you know, and that we loved that show. You know, he'd walk down the aisle and says, all right, who's got a rubber band or something like that or a paper clip? And somebody's like, oh, my God, I got one. And can you imagine that guy did that show? That was like his whole life was Let's Make a Deal. I can't. That must have been torture. I hope they paid him a lot. I think he died recently. But anyway, I think he chose door number one. So anyway, uh, but, you know, in Monty Hall, you know, he gives you the box and then you love what's in the box. And then he says, well, if you don't take the box, you can take what's behind door number one. And something is in, in like that is here. But first, this is much more dire. Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And notice they suppress the truth and I want to point out that suppress is kat echo, which is the same word that God uses for restraining the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2.7. So in our passage where it says God restrains the Antichrist, God restrains what? Well, what is he? He's a man of lawlessness and he's a man of wickedness. God is restraining lawlessness and wickedness. Whereas these type are restraining or suppressing the truth. What are they? They're unrighteous men or ungodly men, men and women, who suppress the truth. Notice how they suppress the truth. It's suppressed in unrighteousness. So the wickedness or unrighteousness is used to suppress the truth. So the truth of sexuality, for instance, for the human race, that is suppressed by lies about, you know, fulfillment of sexuality that are actually not fulfilling, but incredibly damaging to the soul and the body. But so the lie is used, the lie, multiple lies, are heaped on the truth trying to cover and bury it. That's the picture here. It's a great picture. 
But, verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, which Paul shows here why the ungodly try to bury the truth. Because the truth is known. The truth is out there. You know, it's like uh, Solomon writes in Proverbs 1, it stands on the, is it chapter 1, the, uh, the opening of Proverbs, that wisdom, I think it's chapter 8, stands on the rooftops and shouts her voice. It is in chapter 8. She's on the rooftop shouting her voice to all men, wisdom is. That which is known about God is evident w- within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So when our minds want to think about, well, what about, uh, I don't know, Aborigines or Aztecs or, you know, whomever before Christianity, Christianity reached their shores, don't worry about any of that stuff. Right? God has all of that. He's powerful enough to take care of all of that. Just take the truth from the Word of God. The truth is, clearly, as God says, it, that He, His attributes, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood through what has been made so that they're without excuse. Right? That's the truth to take to the bank. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks but they became futile, and there's our word for vanity. That's Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, all things are vanity. Futile means meaningless, means empty, a vacuum. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Another great image for the unbeliever in deceit. Instead of light, darkness. Professing to be wise, they became fools. In exchange, and see, if you're a fool and you profess that you're wise, you're deceived. And exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for the image and form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So those are idols. Therefore, God gave them over. So we're going to see this phrase exactly the same way put three times here. God gave them over. That comes three times. There's also three exchanges. They're gonna, the first one you ju- we just read, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. Now, if you're going to exchange something, you have to have it as a commodity. You have to have it to exchange. Exchanging is uh, a, a, a transaction between two people. And if you're going to exchange something, you have to have it. And so, as God said here, he made his invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature, have been seen, known by them, but and they have this, every member of the human race has this, and they take this, which is really riches, and they exchanged it. They handed it in or used it in payment, and what did they exchange it for? An idol, a wooden bird. That's what they exchanged it for. So, therefore, 24, God gave them over. And the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So verse 25 is just a repetition of why they did this. You know, why are they given over to impurity, which is a word for uncleanliness, and dishonored bodies? Their bodies are dishonored. So those are the two ramifications of exchanging the glory of God to worship idols. Is that the lust in your heart, which by the way, believers and unbelievers all have. We have it because we have flesh. The lust in the heart, which we have the power to say no to, they dive into it and their bodies are dishonored and they become unclean. And that means their lives are unclean. Their soul is unclean. Unclean means stained. Stained by sin, which is misery, which is darkness, is awfulness. And why? Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So there's the second exchange. The truth of God was handed in. So it means that the truth of God, as God said, again, his invisible attributes, eternal power and divine nature, 
that they had this, this truth of this, and they exchanged it for a lie. So dishonoring the body is to use it in a fashion that God has not designed it for. Dishonoring the body could be uh, becoming a heroin addict uh, all to becoming someone who's addicted to gossip or bitterness. It has Every sin has an effect on the mind and the body, physically, inwardly and outwardly. So dishonoring the body, whether it's the tongue, the eyes, the ears, the hands, feeling, putting something into the body. Dishonoring the body is to use it in a fashion that God has not designed it for. And so, if you do not honor God, you will dishonor your body. Now, some have taken this too far and said, well, if you're going to honor God, right, you have to be in absolutely tip-top physical shape or condition. Um, That is a false interpretation. (laughs) At least I hope it is. No, I, I mean, I know it is. It's not. It, what we're talking about is what has God designed the human body to do? And it, it's certainly not to be in the a, you know, absolute top physical condition. That's not the ultimate design of God. The ultimate design of God is to be like Christ, even though we're sinners. To have self-control, to love, to be kind, to be compassionate, to think purity and truth. And to speak truth, to not gossip and judge, but to actually encourage and comfort, to have words of encouragement, to pray for others. These things, all these things that are commands in the Word of God that God designed us to live for. Now, are believers immune to this? So here Paul's talking about the unbeliever. God gave them over. This was true of all of our lives before we became saved. Um, and even if we were in, you know, someone may say, well, I don't dishonor my body because I eat only the right things and I exercise regularly. Yeah, but what do you put into your soul? Because that will affect the body just as much, in a different way, of course, but it will. You know, what you put into the soul will make the lusts of your flesh which again, all of us have. Just cause I, you, you can act on them. That's the way I'm stating this here. For the believer, there's always the potential of lust kind of lingering under the surface that if I let it have um, autonomy or authority over me, it will act in certain ways and cause me to sin or I'll give in to sin. That all of us have flesh. <coughs> So if you don't honor God, you will not honor the body that he has given you. So we can think of the flesh as writhing just under the surface. You know, believers are not immune to this. Looking for The flesh is always looking for its chance to get attention and therefore power and to therefore overcome you. As a believer, you must keep it restrained or held down. And to do so, to do so we need not to be deceived. The truth to us is a power. The truth to us is a power. The power to the mystery of lawlessness is deception. But to us, truth is power. The more you give in to it, the more power you'll have. The more you give in to the flesh, the more power it'll have over you. Even if you confess the sin, and you should every time, confess and repent, you will hold off the long-term effects of sin upon yourself. But if you keep at the same thing and you keep confessing, the influence of sin will grow in strength over you and will continue to hold, have hold its strength over you. Confess it every time, but victory is not in confession. Victory is only admitting defeat, which is a good thing. But that's not victory. Admitting defeat is not victory. Victory is the power of God within you to say no. To say no to these things. To, as Paul said, I buffet my body and make it my slave. That is overcoming.
So the effects on the mind and the body of uncleanliness and dishonor here begin with the deception of unrighteousness. They exchange the glory of the Creator for a lie, for idols. So the these, um, sorry, the lust, the, the the impurity or the uncleanliness and the dishonored body is the result of being deceived. And so we must understand that the deception happens first. And so what we as believers have to avoid is the deception. All right? We, we talked about this before, that when the deception is planted, sin will come eventually. Now, in verse 26, we have it again. But this time, the reference is to a further indecency, which is homosexuality. Look at uh, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire for one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, homosexuality was condoned and accepted in the Greco-Roman world as it is currently in our society. And so, when Christianity came and said that sexuality or sex was to be in marriage, uh, the, the whole Greco-Roman world saw this as restrictive. Like, what well, your God is nothing, he's, he's no fun. He's just nothing but restrictive. That is the deceit. The word degrading, it says he gave them over to degrading passions. It's the same root word as dishonored in verse 24. The dishonored body is the degrading now passion. Degrading and dishonored, they're literally the same root word in Greek. And uh, the degrading passion, passion is pathos. So if you've heard that word pathos, it means to have a passion or a desire for something. And passion can be a good thing if it's pointed at the right object. Now notice the frequency of the word exchanged. Verse 23 they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. In verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And in verse 26, they exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. As I said, an exchange is a transaction between two parties which involves a commodity. And this is really important to understand that every member of the human race is given this commodity. Uh, these three commodities, which are they know God or they know the glory of the incorruptible God. And God says that here. I know we could talk all day about, you know, who, how do they know that? He says through what has been created. So, um, you know, just take it at face value from what the Scripture says, that they understand to some extent the glory of the incorruptible God they understand the truth of God to some extent, right? I mean, not completely. It takes 100,000 lifetimes to understand all the truth. And then they have this natural function of life, which is in their conscience, right? Their conscience, as Paul says, for those who are corrupted, their conscience burns within them or their conscience gets hardened. In this case, in verse 26, they have a natural function, which they know as their conscience. And they have these three things. The understanding to some extent of the glory of the incorruptible God, the understanding of the truth of God to some extent, and the understanding of the natural function of life, of human life, not animal life, human life. And they exchange them. So the deception, therefore, it says that God delivers them over. Because three times we have the exchange and three times God says, I'm going to paradidomize you. I'm going to give you over. And he get, delivers them over to three things. Uncleanliness in the dishonored body. Dishonored passion that results in sexual immorality. It's not just homosexuality, but that's the example that Paul uses there. It could be any sexual immorality. And depraved mind that results in all things that are not fit for mankind. That's the last one, which we'll read in a second. So this deception of adikia, deception of unrighteousness, 
results in God delivering mankind over to what they wanted. They were given these three things as a gift from God. Every member of the human race is. And they exchanged them for idols that resulted in uncleanliness. They exchanged them for uh, dishonored passion, which resulted in sexual immorality, which we know Proverbs talks about this quite a bit, Proverbs 5 and 6, that it destroys the soul, destroys the body and the soul, and gave them over to a depraved mind. And to this depraved mind comes everything that is not fit for mankind. Is it any wonder that the human race is in such a mess and always has been? Now, are believers immune to this? Well, let's read it. We read this Sunday, but let's give the, a read to the last God gave them over. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness. There's Adekia again. All filled with it. Wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although, and that's, I mean, we stop at verse 31 and that's quite a list. And Paul has a few of these. The writers of scriptures in the New Testament seem to like these lists. There's also lists like the fruit of the Spirit, for instance, that are lists of virtuous things. And how this is quite a list. You can imagine Paul as he's either writing these or dictating these. Uh, Paul used uh, what uh, pretty often what they called an uh, amanusis. I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, but he would dictate and somebody else would write. But as he's you know, as he's going through this list, he's piling it on, piling it on as he's thinking of everything that is not fit. So there's the, the key to this. As I, I think we can have a tendency to like pick one of these out or maybe get lost in the list. Like there's so many of them, all of a sudden we stop listening. Like we just think, wow, that's bad, you know. But it's important to look at every one because for some of these, they're not going to really be much of a temptation to you and to others are going to be. You should be able to identify those. And to know that if what I'm falling into, if any one of these has, has um, more control over my life, then to, what should I know about it? It's not fit. That this In verse 28, that word not fit means not proper. It's not proper for the human race. Thus says God, you know, not, not some doctor or some scientist, but God himself who created, God who made us in his image and for his purposes. said so none of these things are fit for you. And so are we immune to it? Is this only the unright? So we have the third God gave them over. Right? God paradidomide. He delivered them. That's the box, the dirty box. He said, you want the dirty box? Here you go. You get what you asked for. Now, I could give you dozens of examples of this, but in Galatians, just two, there's dozens of them. Uh, multiple words that are used in Greek for deception. And this one, Galatians 6, 7, uh, this word is plene. Uh, this Greek word means to be misled. Do not be deceived or do not be misled. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. This is to believers now. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. James 1, 15 through 16. Where are you, James? There you are. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it bring, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And he says in the next verse, every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In other words, with God the Father, there is no deceit. There's no smoke and mirrors here. There's no deceit. 
When lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Prolonged sin actually does bring forth a living death, as James goes into in his letter. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. But as believers, see, the unbeliever don't really, doesn't really have a hope other than the gospel. Because in our passage, it says those who have fallen for all this deceit of wickedness are those who are perishing. Right? They're the unbeliever. They're those who are going to come to an end, a certain end. But for us as believers, though we have this flesh, we have weapons that our Lord has graciously given to us. And we saw this last week where the Lord who is who slays Satan with the breath of his mouth, what comes out of his mouth, right? The breath of his mouth is his sword. And so Jesus has given us his very uh, weapons of warfare. He gave us his word, he gave us his spirit, and he gave us his armor. And so with these tools, we don't have to be deceived. And take, for instance, the word, the, the great, Weapon, that is the word. This is what Jesus uses to defeat uh, the Antichrist, to defeat Satan, to defeat the Antichrist, and to bring his kingdom to an end. The psalmist in Psalm 119, 105 says, your, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I chose this picture of a little boy. Because right? we're all children. As grown-ups, we're children in adult bodies, in adult suits, but we're still children. But we stand between two worlds that overlap. Right? Not in heaven yet, but actually the New Testament writes as if we're already there, seated with Christ in heavenly places in Ephesians 2.6. And also of the flesh, where we can sin. If anybody sins, as John says, 1 John 1, 8, 1 John 1, 10, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. And so we're caught between two worlds. And while we're able to look to the darkness, and we see all these unbelievers around us who are being delivered over and delivered over, and we can remember ourselves before we were saved that we were delivered over. As whatever we pursued, God delivered us over to it. He said, if that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. And we did this. But now we have this amazing choice. And yet, and we're caught. We're caught here between two worlds. Heaven and earth, spirit and flesh. Right? Walk according to the spirit and you won't carry out the desire of the flesh. Galatians 5, 16 and 17. The flesh wars with the spirit. The spirit wars with the flesh. We have two worlds inside of us. We're stuck between two worlds. And the world to come in the tribulation is going to be an unrestrained deception. At least in our age, it's restrained to some extent. And we're still, for us, we look at this passage in Romans 1 of the unbeliever. We know we were there and we know that we can get drawn back into it. Not lose our salvation, but drawn back into anything on that list of that end of Romans 1. Can I be unrighteous? Can I be wicked? Can I be greedy? Can I be evil? Can I be envious? Can I murder? Can I have strife? Can I deceive? Can I have malice? Can I gossip? Can I slander? Can I hate God? Maybe for a moment. Can I be insolent, arrogant, boastful? Can I disobey my parents or disobey any authority? Can I be untrustworthy or unloving or unmerciful? Uh, yeah, I can. And therefore, we have here, between these two worlds, we have the first advent of Christ. And really, that looks back upon our flesh. Because what did he do on the cross? The, the, the messianic work of Christ resulted in the cross, right? That was his path, and he knew it, and he went right to it. No one could stop him. He went right to the cross, and even though he could have called down those 70,000 angels, he said, no, things must be done this way, 
Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But no, it's your will, not mine. I must go. And he goes. He goes to the cross. And what does he deal with there? Our flesh. His flesh was torn. That's why when we eat the bread, that's what it represents. For us, he gave us his body. He died a spiritual death and a physical death. But then he was resurrected on the third day and exalted, ascended into heaven, now sits at the right hand of God, and he will come again. And that world is in the future. And we long for it. We long for it. But we're not there. And yet our judgment before Christ will be there. Our rewards, our heavenly rewards will be there. And here on this earth, we're stuck in these old bodies that are getting older and older. And we long to see them, stuck between two worlds. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says that we've, been, we've died with Christ and we have been raised with him. Two worlds. A dead world and a resurrected world. In the present evil age, which is full of deception and wickedness, we Christians continue to live in the flesh. But we Christians who live in the flesh are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. And in some theological circles, this is called the already but not yet tension that exists in every believer. And I like that. I think that's a very accurate way to put it. Uh, Already... I have Christ. I'm seated with Him in heavenly places. He indwells me. I have His Word. Uh, I'm destined for heaven. I'm righteous. I'm justified. I'm adopted. I'm elected. I've got it all. Predestined. I've got it. But I'm not quite there. As I'm in this world, I can look to the darkness or I can look to the light. I can look to my flesh or I can look to the Spirit. I can buffet my body or I can give in to my body, meaning it's lusts and passions and desires. These are very real options for me. When I was an unbeliever, I was stuck in it. I was stuck in Romans 1. But now I'm not. As a believer, I'm in Romans 3, 4, 5, 6. Shall I count to 16? I mean, now, right, it's Romans 3.21 was that there's that but in Greek. It's Allah. Allah, but Christ came and justified us by faith. And, and now here we are, died with him and resurrected. Look at Romans 1.3. Paul alludes to this right at the beginning of the letter. Romans 1.3. Concerning his son, who was born of a... Dis- Sorry, concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, and what Paul is alluding to here is that Christ came in the flesh and then was resurrected and that the first destiny of the Messiah is to die for the sins of the world. It's miserable for him to sacrifice himself, to be forsaken by his Father. And then, however, what comes is resurrection. That's the next stage of Messiah. And we have our sins paid for by him, but we can still go back to them. But we also have this resurrection life that we can head off onto, the path of life. And we have this every day are stuck between right there, those two worlds, our two worlds, right at the opening of this letter. The first advent and the second advent, the flesh and the spirit. Every day we have this set before us. And you and I can choose either. And things come upon us that are tempting, that tempt us to whatever, anger, lust. We can give in to it. And confess it. We've probably done that a million times. But what God wants us to do is resist it by His power and become overcomers. We're not going to become sinless, but we can overcome that which rules us because of the resurrection of our Lord. And we're no longer in Romans 1, although we can dabble in it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for this truth that comes from your um, 
your doctrine that is in your word concerning deception. That we are no longer deceived about you, about our Lord, about salvation, about heaven, but we can still be deceived as our flesh can still tempt us so much. So we ask, Father, that you enlighten us by your word, by the word that we've learned here today, that we would have greater power to walk in the light and to not be in darkness. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.